Brought to you by Moonbeam Multimedia. This is 16 to 1, a podcast about education, teaching, and learning. Hello. How are you? Uh, doing well. Feeling rested, finally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Doing that thing. Spent some time in the pool yesterday doing nothing but relaxing and reading. Yeah. I'm finally, I'm almost, can you believe it? I'm almost done with my book, the Bell Labs book. I will do anything for you to be done with that book. <laughs> it's, I don't want it to end. I, I keep can tell. Up, you I keep read like up, a page a week. I know, but I keep picking up other books in the meantime. But yeah, I'm almost yeah. done with it. And it's really good. I don't think people realize that. A lot of summer is spent doing everything we don't have time to do during the regular year. True. Like, this is when all of my doctor's appointments happen. And house maintenance. Yeah, we're fixing the fence. It's just like, I don't think people realize that a good portion of a teacher's summer is spent doing all the things they need to live. Well, it's because you're pretty pretty occupied during American business hours during the school year. Yeah, I don't have a job that, like... Pop over to... yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've had a doctor's appointment a week... And that's just what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Okay. Ready to jump in? You want to take us on our education news headline roundup? Would you like to go first this week? Yeah. Here we go. go for it. Number one, as expected, student loans are back in our headlines. They are. It's true. So following the Supreme Court's decision to strike down Biden's debt relief plan that would have leveraged the HEROES Act, which was to provide debt relief for up to 40 million borrowers, The president's administration announced a round of automatic loan repayments due to 800,000 plus loan holders under fixes to the 1965 Higher Education Act, which basically stipulates that a borrower is eligible for loan forgiveness after making 240 or 300 qualifying monthly payments. Basically, you've been paying on that loan for 20 to 25 years Mm -hmm. on an income driven repayment plan, depending on what your plan type was. So the administration released a statement, and this is their quote, the forthcoming discharges are a result of fixes implemented by the Biden-Harris administration to ensure all borrowers have an accurate count of the number of monthly payments that qualify towards forgiveness under income-driven repayments, IDR, plans, end quote. Yeah. This applies to people who have been paying for their loans for roughly 20 years. Yeah. So um, people who are probably a little more secure in their jobs than you know someone yeah. in their 20s yeah i mean this is I, i'm sure this is welcome relief for this slice yeah. of people sure. uh but i i'm a little underwhelmed by this and the timing of this this kind of feels like a tiny little slice of consolation pie compared to what was on the table before not was... quite enough to fill you up right just a little taste <laughs> to bite this is ruling Happening and then this and we go from 40 million affected borrowers to just under a million. So I I feel like this is the Biden administration clawing at whatever positive news they can try to get at with regard to student loans. This is a big promise of this administration. They've been obviously (laughs) unable to get student debt relief, any traction on that Mm -hmm. in Congress and obviously, they also failed to get traction on it with regard to leveraging the HEROES Act. Mm-hmm. And we did talk about that a Times lot. Are tough. This sort of seems to me like it's already supposed to work this way. And they're just mm. the timing of it 
are taking credit for it. Oh. So... I don't like that. I don't know. I don't know exactly... I didn't dig deep into what the fixes supposedly are to the Higher Education Act, but this sounds like basically just holding the companies accountable for what they're already supposed to be Mm -hmm. doing and maybe just haven't done as a result of clerical errors or something, or just ignoring the problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Headline number two, move over Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. There's a new fraudster on trial. Oh, she'll be devastated. Uh, Her name is Charlie Javis. I think that's how you say it. She's the founder of Frank, which I'd never heard of before, but was apparently a student aid assistance company that was acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase in 2021 for the hefty sum of $175 million. cow. Okay, so Javis is on trial for fraud, wire fraud, and bank fraud. This really does sound similar to Theranos. Yeah, except for no blood. The government yeah. alleges that Javis lied about Frank's client base in order to inflate the company's value and secure the acquisition deal. If convicted, mm. Javis faces up to 20 years in prison. She allegedly lied about Frank's number of active users, revenue, and partnerships with universities. Oh. I was reading about this and she was, I think she tried to have somebody at her company essentially create a bunch of fake client records. Before they were acquired, because J.P. Morgan was like, hey, we need to see your, you know, we need to see your paperwork here. And the person at her company, uh, I think in the article I was reading, refused to do it. So she went to some other data scientist and was like, can you invent a whole bunch of customers? (laughs) Basically. Oh, my goodness. I'm not sure how, and I have the same feeling about Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know how these people think they're going to get away with this. Like, do they just think that companies don't do due diligence in a a $175 million deal? They're not going to do... Due diligence. Well, and like about Elizabeth Holmes, like Theranos got what Rite Aid or CVS involved. Like, I think well, she fooled everyone. No, the, I know. Like but, her whole yeah. I'm just saying. But like, even that eventually still fell apart because somebody along the line did due diligence and was like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't actually have the product that you. Yeah, you no, do. I'm just anyway. Trial is currently underway. Federal court oh. in Manhattan expected to last several weeks. And like I said, I'd never heard of this company called Frank, but they, but it. As you can see, the student loan industry is fraught with complications, yeah. much like this one. It does sound like Elizabeth Holmes might have a new soulmate, though. Yep. yep. Sounds like we Charlie, meet Elizabeth. Good luck. Good okay. Luck. Last one. Yes. Last week, Harvard University announced initial guidelines for the use of generative artificial intelligence programs such as ChatGPT, MidJourney, Dolly, and others in an email to university staff, students, and partners. According to the Crimson, the email, quote, emphasized the protection of confidential data, reiterated academic integrity policies, and warned against AI phishing attempts. That's the end of the quote. The university said that it supported responsible experimentation with AI tools. Yeah. So they wanted to put some parameters around this. And this is kind of what you and I have been talking about. Like, it's really not acceptable to just ignore these technologies mm-hmm. and pretend like they don't exist. We need to teach people how to use them responsibly. I think there's going to be a great need for increased tech literacy very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that teachers and students alike are going to have to become way more familiar with these things quickly than, than the average mm-hmm. layperson, non-technical yeah. layperson is. Because we need to was... start to understand. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. As someone who was forced to sit through professional development at the end of the year about artificial intelligence. Yikes. And I know that I certainly knew more about it than the person giving the PD. Yeah, you were telling me information about this professional development, and I was 
climbing up the walls. It was making me nuts because the person that they had come to talk to you about it clearly did not understand no. it. They were not a technical. They, they were not. They were acting like they had technical understanding of ChatGPT, but they said, for example, stuff like you can't plagiarize if it comes from mm-hmm. ChatGPT. It's not plagiarism. You absolutely 100% can if you, because ChatGPT comes up with stuff from sources all over the internet mm-hmm. and doesn't cite its sources in a lot of cases, yeah. or if it does. Or it's uh, made up. Yeah, or this the sources are made up, or if it yeah. does cite sources, it doesn't do it very prominently and anyway there are a whole bunch of ethical issues with regard to these things that this person providing professional development Mm -hmm. to you did not seem to quite grasp and that was really concerning to me and i think that schools are going to need to start paying more attention to this stuff quickly luckily in that room i was in there and a few of my other coworkers who were well aware of artificial intelligence and kind of its use in this way yeah like your technology teacher and so we push back on her a lot i'm so glad you did and I flat out said, like, w- one of the things she told us to do was to put a student's essay into ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT to provide feedback. And I just looked at the whole staff and I was like, if you think our administration is going to support that, like, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that's going to be suitable to report to a student or to a parent or to an administrator. Yeah, that was that's other, how you graded their essay. That was the other facet of the presentation that I found was interesting was that she was encouraging you all to do things that your school has made a conscious effort to discourage you from doing and for reasons not Mm -hmm. just not just because of a sort of fear of the technology or not understanding it but like you've made a concerted effort to think about these things and you've come up with some policies and approaches and this person presenting was just like it's cool just do it for everything like Mm -hmm. look how nifty it is and it's like oh yeah yeah it's like the person offering the PD listened to all of the tech bro Elon Muskie headlines about this kind of technology and just became dazzled by it and didn't follow through on yeah. some of the ethical or technological it was implications. It was really rough. Well, I'm glad that you felt empowered to point mm-hmm. out some of these problems. Did not have much fun with that. Yeah. Anyways. Okay, so Harvard Harvard leading the way there. I, I would like to dig into the, the what exactly those... Uh, those guidelines were. I'm sure they were pretty interesting, but it was in an email and I couldn't find the original text of the email, but the the Crimson was reporting on it there and we'll put that link in the show notes. Mm -hmm. This guy's been on our list from the start. Oh, we've been threatening to do an episode on John Dewey since the very beginning of the podcast. I fear we'll have no more John Dewey jokes. I, you know, it's funny because I gave myself a little, we've been doing this for years now and I've gotten a little, even more distance from John Dewey. And I will just say at the top of this, that John Dewey was a big part of my graduate education because I went to Teachers College, Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And that's, he's very tied up he's in Columbia. And butter. Yeah. We're going to talk about John Dewey. We sure are. And what Dewey did and what Dewey didn't. You're welcome. <laughs> I've been okay. workshopping that one for a moment. You really planned that, didn't you? <laughs> and I'm done. Okay. Okay. So here's a quote from John Dewey to start with. It says, I believe that education is the fundamental method of social progress and reform. Yeah, I agree with him. Okay. This is what I was telling you when we were preparing for this. I was like, yeah, I kind of forgot how much I actually do believe some of these you things Dewey? that he said. I, Come on. There's going to be so many good ones. I don't think there are. Lean in. I think We're going to lean out. Okay. So Dewey lived from the Civil War to the Cold War. 
He wrote 37 books. He published 766 articles and 151 journals. In his lifetime, he was hailed as America's preeminent philosopher. And in China, people called him the second Confucius. I did not know that part. He was born October 20th, 1859, and he died June 1st, 1952. To highlight what... Dewey believed in and his brand of educational philosophy it uses you're going to hear the word pragmatism and basically he saw the purpose of education as the cultivation of thoughtful critically reflective and socially engaged individuals rather than passive recipients of established knowledge so far what I've learned about Dewey is that it was a lot of do as I say not as I do wait what do you mean by that because everyone that I read about said that and like what you talked about too is just like he was very, like, sage on a stage, yes. but yep. was very get your hands in there and, like, do the thing. But Dewey did not do what... Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. You know well, what I mean? Let me just pause for just a moment to set the stage a little bit. So John Dewey is very a very big name in American education. If you go to school to mm-hmm. learn how to be a teacher in America, you are probably going to learn some things about John Dewey and his philosophy. Whether it's, you want to or not, yes, you are going to be forced. It's very big... <laughs> He sort of is the founder of a, of a certain school of psychology. He's So he's like a psychologist and an educational reformer. Yes, he's very tied up in pragmatism and progressivism. And like you're saying, he had a lot of ideas that he did not particularly adhere to himself mm-hmm. as a classroom teacher. Mm-hmm. The one story, I had it farther down, but I'll just say it. Yeah, sorry. It I just felt like it was worth mentioning because I feel like the whole time we're talking about somebody who didn't actually do the things that yeah. he was like, preaching to well, do, which kinda, is odd. It's kind of funny because like he, he, so he was influenced by Rousseau and, and Rousseau was also historically really bad. at Rousseau had a lot of things to say about parenting and mm. education and upbringing. And he was historically quite bad at parenting himself. He would just like <laughs> abandon kids at orphanages and oh, stuff. And just, like, that's historically bad. Wrote, yeah, that's bad. Yeah, but he wrote a book called Emil, which is both about education and parenting kind of. But it's mm-hmm. about this idea of sort of letting children in a self-directed way be driven by their curiosities as they are Mm. growing and learning and whatever. So much like Rousseau was historically bad at being a parent, John Dewey was anecdotally bad at being a a classroom educator. Mm -hmm. He not only discovered that he probably didn't have what it takes to be a primary school educator, Mm -mm. uh, but he also was, according to the stories that I heard while at Columbia, he would, he was a very bad lecturer. Like he would stand at the, front of a classroom in the middle of station just like stare out a window <laughs> to de- and deliver remarks to his students and mm. they'd be like um are you talking to us or like is what? this for he us would, he would just be staring out or are you working out something on your own a window at the side yeah. of the room and just not looking at students so anyway yeah. he's definitely not straightforward he's a little bit controversial sometimes but he has a definitely has an outsized presence in American educational mm-hmm. circles and more modern education reform movements. So sure. anyway, that's just setting the stage. Are you ready to go way back with me? I'm ready to go way back. Okay. Dewey was raised in Burlington, Vermont. His mom was a pretty religious woman and his dad was a well-read grocer. He was one of four boys and he was actually the second Dewey's son named John after the first one was killed in an accident. And the John Dewey that we know was born 40 weeks later and they named him John. That's that's weird they to re- me. So they lost one John and got a replacement John. I think it would be way too much pressure to be the replacement John. Like, well, what? you're like, oh, I'm the second try of this name. He's, he's the second attempt. Like, what if it's a family name, too, and you feel like you have a lot well, of... Well, I'm assuming it is, because there had to be more than just John as an option back then. I Anyways. Just... 
Okay. No pressure, but you're the second John. So uh, Dewey attended the University of Vermont. In post-graduation, he spent three years teaching high school. Two years he spent in Oil City, Pennsylvania, where he taught Latin and algebra and, by all accounts, was average at best. And then one year in Charlotte, Vermont, and that's when he realized he might be better suited for older students, which is roughly translated to, I'm bad at this, and I'm going to go do something else. Yeah. So he leaves the classroom. I mean, at least he was self-aware. At least he knew he was not good at this. We love a Mm -hmm. self-aware, I Mm -hmm. guess. But it's interesting that the guy who wrote the book on... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Anyway, okay. Okay. So from there, after realizing that uh, the classroom is not for him in that way... Right. At least not with young kids. Yes. He thinks that's the problem. He does. Mm -hmm. He thinks that, yeah, mm -hmm. he thinks the older kids will be better, but it sounds as if that was not the case either. He decides to go back to school, and he is going to go to Johns Hopkins University, where he will eventually receive his PhD from the School of Arts and Sciences. So, jumping ahead. 1884, he accepts a faculty position at the University of Michigan, and he's there off and on until 1894. While he's at the University of Michigan, he marries one of his students. Her name is Alice, and they start a family together. And it's actually their children that sort of help inspire him to devote much of what will become his future work in education, using his background in psychology, um, because he was hoping to correct some of the issues and the flaws that he had experienced and what he knew school to be like. Mm. Okay. But having it sounds kids like of he his has own, a lot to say about the educational system, both as a I product of it and as a... Grind, yeah, right, right. I it think. sounds... I mean, let me just tell you, as mm-hmm. somebody with an extra grind with the education system, you it do. can be a great motivator for wanting to become involved mm-hmm. in its future. So I get it. Yeah. So Dewey, like I said, he marries one of his students. They have some children together, and that's kind of where he decides his work will go. So that was at the University of Michigan. So now in 1894... He moves to the University of Chicago, and he's there for the next 10 years. And so here's a quote that I found from uh, the National Endowment for the Humanities article that I was reading, and I'll include the link in the show notes. It says, before he published his groundbreaking essay, Dewey had to test his half-formed ideas in a real school. Thus, he and his wife ran the lab school at the University of Chicago from 1894 to 1905. Classes were small and select. Dewey drew on the expertise of Chicago's professors to create age-appropriate curriculums, stressing discovery and cooperation and the talents of creative teachers to implement it. The Dewey School was distinctly middle class with motivated students and supportive parents. Hmm. So that's kind of what he set up to do at the University of Chicago. Chelsea and I were talking about Dewey last night. I'm getting some hints of Maria Montessori vibes from Dewey at times. Yeah, I would say that they have some overlap in their approach. The sort of self-directed learning business, yeah. And so here's kind of where that comes from, though. So in 1899, he published the pamphlet that would make him famous, The School and Society. And in it, he basically insisted that the old model of schooling, where students sat in rows, they memorized and recited things, was antiquated. He believed that students should be active, not passive, and that they required compelling and relevant projects, not lectures. Ironic. Uh, students should become problem solvers and use interest, not fear, to motivate them. And they should cooperate and not compete. I, I think I've told this story before, but what, while at Columbia and learning about all of this stuff, and Dewey specifically, and going over how 
he was like, yes, we shouldn't be sitting in rows and memorizing and reciting and listening to lectures because it's such passive learning. Mm -hmm. I was sitting in a row row. listening to a lecture. (laughs) About passive learning. (laughs) And they tried to like do this mixed approach or whatever. They were always sort of doing this meta-analysis of how they were doing the education in their own education school, right? Mm -hmm. So like being a student at Teachers College is half of it is just about thinking about how you're in class that day. But anyway, I just, I did that always would not, find it. That would not do the, the thing Well, because you're always talking about teaching. So it's just like, you're always talking about what is happening to you in addition to yeah. the process that mm. you're going to share with Levels. your own students down the line. So yeah, but I always did find it a bit confusing and off-putting to hear about how bad lectures were for learning in lecture form. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So I like what Dewey was doing, if Mm -hmm. you will. I Mm -hmm. like the idea of cooperation. I think all of that is really good. Sure. And so here's another quote from the National Endowment of the Humanities, kind of about the historical backdrop at the time. Mm -hmm. So the quote says, America in 1900 was preoccupied with the clash between capital and labor, debating how to make the worker more than an appendage to the machine. Well, that's not familiar at all. (laughs) To science, geography, and physics, Dewey added another advantage, meaning... While the typical student did not go on to high school or attend college, manual training conducted by a skilled teacher could stimulate the imagination, enlarge the sympathies, and acquaint young people with scientific intelligence. Dewey was outraged that thousands of young ones are practically ruined in the Chicago schools every year. That was his quote. Mm -hmm. His new education sought to encourage students to continue in school and combat the increase in juvenile delinquency and look to produce an inquiring student who could change America. That's all well and good because he's definitely pushing against what's happening at the time. Right. What I appreciate in Dewey's approach to education is that we're not teaching it as job training. Mm -hmm. Not that education should prepare you for work, but that's not the only thing that it is there to do. It is there to prepare you to be a human being and live a human life. And insofar as we reduce the purpose of education to that of preparing for a job, we're not equipping people to be people we're equipping people to be job holders Mm -hmm. and that is not i don't personally think that that is the sole purpose of education Mm -hmm. um so dewey is very obviously very concerned about these things as well he has some sort of strange approaches but i at least can sympathize with that like i said dewey was at the university of chicago for just about 10 years Mm mm-hmm until he left because of a long-standing beef between him and the president of the University of Chicago at the time, mm-hmm. a guy named William Rainey Harper. There seems to be some bad blood about his wife not getting a leadership position yeah. at a school when they were starting with another organization. And William Rainey Harper is an Ohio boy. Uh-huh. He has ties to the Ohio State University, and he is a new Concord native. I couldn't find the exact details here, but it sounds like his wife got slighted by... Somebody at mm-hmm. U Chicago, and mm-hmm. he was just like, "I'm out of here." Yeah, it seems like they just really had it out for each other. Yeah, for... it sounds like there was not a good relationship. There. Yeah, and I, a little bit later, I'm going to talk about some of the odd things about Dewey because yeah, we've only just dude. scratched the surface. So I can imagine if you're the president of the University of Chicago, while John Dewey might be very exciting to have, you you might always have to be <laughs> covering he's for something just, that's about to happen. He's a so. little bit odd. Okay. It's okay. Dewey leaves the University of Chicago and heads to Columbia, which is where he's probably most well known for his work. Mm -hmm. And he retired from there in 1930. Yes. And then 
in the meantime, he also did a whole bunch of other stuff. He became president of the American Philosophical Association in 1905, longtime member of the American Federation of Teachers, along with historians Charles Beard and James Harvey Robinson, and the economist Thorstein Veblen. Dewey is one of the founders of the New School uh, that was founded in 1919 by this group of progressive intellectuals. They were looking for a new, more relevant model of education. It was originally known as the New School for Social Research, and uh, it's grown to become a leading university with five colleges and schools. It continues to be a beacon of progressive thought and intellectual inquiry to this day. And then his most famous works include The School and Society, Democracy and Education, Experience in Education, and Art as Experience. These works have been translated into many languages, have been read by scholars and educators around the world. Did you go to Columbia because of Dewey? Was that, was no. that on your radar? Not okay. at all. <laughs> Okay. Can I tell you just some things that I learned about John Dewey? Yeah. These, that these didn't things... really fit something else, uh-huh. but I thought, you know what? People should know this. Well, these are the things that I wish I had known in graduate school because it would have made the whole study of him more, yeah, at least entertaining yeah. and engaging. But he's kind of a weird guy. Yeah. Okay. So Dewey historically loved democracy. He's very big on democracy. Yes. Also was a self-proclaimed, quote, something of an anarchist. Yeah. He talked about democracy this way. He said, quote, democracy and the one ultimate ethical ideal of humanity are to my mind synonymous. Uh Uh-huh. End quote. So. So he's very obsessed with democracy, but also occasionally something of an anarchist. Yeah. Whatever that means. Um, I get it. President Eisenhower once said that all of the failings of the U.S. education system were because of John Dewey. <laughs> wow. That's tough. I wonder why Eisenhower specifically had such an know. axe to grind with him. I'm going to have to read about that. Yeah. Um, like I said earlier, his mother was a really devoted Christian. And as he got older, it seemed, I don't know if stray is the right word, but he got, he had, there was distance between kind of how he was raised and his Christian beliefs, but then he would also like sprinkle in Christian beliefs into some of his writings. Mm-hmm. So I would file that under the same place as the maybe anarchist, maybe loves democracy. <laughs> democracy. Yeah. Well, I think he appreciated some of the moral teachings of Christianity. Yeah. And anyway, yeah, he believed that urban children needed to sew, cook, and work with metal and wood, which I like. Hands on. Okay, so he's saying that these city kids are soft. They need to know how to patch their clothes. He did not say directly soft, but I think he he thought that they could be more useful. <laughs> useful. <laughs> yeah. See, this is um, funny to me, is because he wants he wants everybody to be able to do these like basic function yeah. of life things, but yeah. he also doesn't want us to become cogs in the capitalistic machine. Right. So he's like, also make sure you can use uh-huh. a handsaw. I don't know. Okay. okay. He was really well liked as a person. Well, maybe other than William Rainey Harper. <laughs> um, he did not boast about himself. He did not talk about himself. And okay. he never wrote anything about himself. There are no memoirs or autobiographies. And uh, I did. I've read a lot of information about Dewey these last few days. But I feel like every time somebody talked about meeting Dewey, they were like surprised by how much they liked Dewey. Does that make sense? Well, that it does make sense because when you read his stuff, it's like dry as much like it would probably be boring to sit and listen to him lecture. There are great ideas in it, but it is not overly engaging and it wouldn't give yeah. you the impression that this guy is fun to hang out yeah. with at a party. Let's no, just say. I guess he was like a great time. Okay. Okay. Everyone was like a big fan of him. I love me that him. John Dewey. He's such a hoot. Yeah. Okay. Weirdly. As we mentioned, he was basically notoriously a sage on the stage in yes. the classroom. Yes. And 
one of the articles I read had one of his former students talking about he would just sit at a table with like one sheet of paper and he would keep coming back to something he had said, rephrasing or restating. And they said they couldn't figure out if he was trying to make us understand it or if he was trying to make sure he understood it as he was (laughs) saying it. It makes sense why somebody like this would have been disappointed by the traditional education system, too. And according to his students, it was either really successful or truly awful and distracting. Okay. He and his wife walked around their house naked a lot. He and his wife walked around naked? Yep, just in their house. That was just like part of their lives. Okay. And this next part will probably not surprise you. He was reclusive at times. He had severe bouts of depression. They lost two of their sons before the age of 10. And he was always deep into reading a book. And at times he would have to actually quit reading for extended amount of time to make sure that like his work was done. Yeah, I heard that he or, quit reading because of eye strain. He was? had really bad eye strain, but also like he would become so engrossed in a book that he literally would not do anything else. Mm. And so he had. I also like, understand that impulse. Yeah, but one of the articles I read said that he would have to quit reading for six months just so he could get a paper done because he could not multitask. He could not stop reading long enough to do something. But then he was this really well liked. Person. Sure. I just this, this is guys, not that surprising to me. This no, is not this is I just a dude who hyper focuses. I just I'm interested. Yeah. Because every time I read about him, it was like people being shocked that they liked him as much as they did. And I was like, I get it, because nothing about him like translates on paper to me being like, this would be fun. Yeah. But then everyone is like, oh my gosh. Anyways. So there's some things that I think are worth mentioning about Dewey to kind of understand. I think that's helpful to frame this next part, which is this educational philosophy. He was known as the father of functional psychology, Mm -hmm. which is basically this school of thought that emphasizes the purpose of behavior. It's this idea that behavior is adaptive and serves a purpose. And functional psychologists are kind of interested in understanding the functions, functions of behaviors, like how it helps us survive and thrive in our environment. So anyway, he's the father of functional psychology, and he's obviously a major education reformer. He's public intellectual. His background was shaped by his study of pragmatism, which is a philosophical movement that emphasizes the importance of experience and practical problem solving. You can kind of see this as a reaction to this this notion that education is about something lofty mm-hmm. or like disconnected mm-hmm. from the man's day-to-day mm-hmm. life. It, it's a pushback against that. Well, um, especially because Dewey seemed very determined to make education accessible for all people, even when he knew not everyone would go to high school or college, which I think is interesting. Yeah. So he's very focused on pragmatism, importance of active learning, experiential Mm -hmm. education. You were talking about this sounds a little bit like Montessori. Yeah, Um, I like that part. He believed that education should be child-centered and that it should prepare students for active participation in a democratic society. In his writings, this is where he really got me, but he thinks that the day-to-day function of civil society, especially democracy and education, you, you can't separate those problems. And sort of one has to do with the other, and the state of one has to do with the state of the other. Mm-hmm. And if one is experiencing problems, so is the, the other. other probably yep. is too. So if you have a dysfunctional democracy, you probably also have dysfunction in your education system, vice versa. He argued that students should learn by doing. They should be encouraged to ask questions and solve problems. He had this idea that kids are naturally curious, and if you just leave them alone and let them have fun, that they will learn. That Mm -hmm. kind of thought. He also believed that education should be relevant to students' lives. It should help them develop skills and knowledge. They need to be successful in life. And his philosophy has been criticized by some for being too focused on 
the present experience and for neglecting the importance of traditional academic subjects. But even though there's pushback there, his ideas have also been praised for their emphasis on creativity, problem solving, and social responsibility. Mm-hmm. What a weird guy. Yeah. I'm, I think I'm pleasantly surprised. You are? I think so. Are you going to go read uh, no. any of his book? No? Oh, no, why not? I read some of it. I read enough of it. To yeah. I, I do remember being very... Uh, it was a slog to get through some of it, but it was very interesting stuff. I don't think I... Here's what I actually... I'm mostly surprised by is that I think I agree with him more than I disagree with him, mm-hmm. which I wasn't expecting. Mm-hmm. Why weren't you expecting to agree with him? Just different time, different place, different yeah, sensibility yeah, yeah. kind of thing? I think I've just, now that I've been in the classroom 10 years, I think I've got kind of a diff- different grasp on it. Yeah. He definitely informed my theoretical understandings of education. I think something that strikes me about Dewey is that I don't think he went into it thinking he had every answer. And I like that. I like that he kind of went into it thinking, I want to make it better. And what that looks like could be a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Because in my experience of a lot of these people that I've read, it's a lot of like, do it exactly like this and this will be successful. You know, whatever. And I don't really get that vibe from Dewey. Yeah, I think experimentation is definitely part of his routine. Yeah, and I think that's probably why I'm less offended by him than so many others because... Um, well, I think he also thinks that students should learn that way. Yeah, he also thinks that students should learn kind of by right. trial and error in some cases. And I also don't think he, I don't think he went by way of this is the only way and it is my way and it is perfect. And I like he didn't have an inflated ego about it or something like. And I think that's proof by how much everyone seemed to like him and be surprised by liking him because mm-hmm. he didn't talk about himself. So I think I think I just kind of like that. I hadn't really done any sort of deep dive on anything about his personal life before before <laughs> this. So there's some, certainly some interesting details yeah. there. So that's Dewey. It's good to finally. Uh, Does Columbia like have his one? like desk somewhere uh, that you can? There like, is are, his you know his office like have like a glass over it where you can see it. Uh, like is no, there a favorite window no. like you know. I mean, I'm sure they exist, but yeah. they don't. Uh, so they just talked about him a lot. Yes, there were gotcha. there were a lot of conversations about John. Dewey. And you had professors that like what had Dewey or something. I mean, he died in the early '50s, so you'd think like there were certainly people there who were old enough to have been around for the Dewey days. For the Dewey days, but they were probably pretty young, um, super young then. But yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that the, that anecdote about him staring out the window while lecturing was passed down. Gotcha. Through real people sure, at Columbia. Sure. So that much, I think somebody was in proximity to him. But I gotcha. Yeah. I think Dewey is fine. I don't think we should throw him off of, like, you know, uh, the educational mountain or anything like that. Well, nobody asked you to, to be against him. I don't think you have no, to No, but you were just talking him. about how he's kind of a divisive or a uh, debated uh, yeah, like is it is this this kind of idea, we can, what are the practical implications of these theoretical... Yeah. I mean, that's what people argue about in grad school, too. They were like, this is nice, and yeah, education and democracy do seem to have something to do with each other, mm-hmm. but what does that mean for me in my classroom when I have yeah. 25 screaming children and their parents are mad? <laughs> Let's talk about democracy. But there's always uh. this tension, I think, between the, the theoretical lessons and the practicalities of the teaching profession, mm-hmm. and it is that doesn't mean that what he says is not important. It means that you read it in order to give context to your day-to-day work, not to give you answers of to how to solve problems. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. It's not a, nice. it's not a, like a fact book of how to do teaching. It's like a, if you think that the purpose of education 
is to create free citizens in a democratic society. Here's what you need to be thinking about mm-hmm. as you go about to your promote day-to-day. that learning. Or yeah. You know, yeah, well, we did it. We covered Dewey. We finally did. He's it. off our list. Maybe we'll, we'll have to revisit Dewey. Maybe we can do a deep cuts. Maybe Dewey maybe cuts. we'll go read a Dewey something. And I definitely think at least one of these books would appeal to you. I'm sure. Maybe I'm a Dewey fan. And I just we'll, found out. I think you might like it. I, I mean, think. maybe we should do a book club, and you can you can decide. Okay. That sounds great. Ready to move on to our fill in the blank? Goodbye, John Dewey. Yes. I will do last show's question. Okay, go for it. We did an episode on the culinary arts and we asked, in what year did Michelin publish its first American guide? And there was a hint about the answer in the episode because it was the first year that New York had published results in the Michelin Guide, and that was 2005, and that's mm-hmm. the first year for New York, also the first year for an American Guide. 2005, it took yeah. that long to get yeah. us on the map. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Our food probably didn't really deserve it too much sooner. I'm going to jump back to Dewey for this question. Okay. And more naked people. One of Dewey's heroes was this famous American writer, the author of Leaves of Grass, and a man who enjoyed spending time with his friends while naked. Who is that famous writer? Spending time with his friends while naked. I it do just, be like that sometimes. I want to know what these people were doing. Maybe we're too... It's this, well, it's this connection to nature thing. For that, him, for sure. But I just mean like, I don't know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I just... It was such a weird thing that kept coming up. I was like, why do I have to keep reading about John Dewey walking around naked? Um, <laughs> hey. And then I had to read about this guy walking around naked. And I was like, why? <laughs> Somebody... <laughs> Okay, so in news of not being naked, uh-huh. here's what I learned. Okay, what did you learn this week? Yeah. <laughs> so Wimbledon just finished up mm-hmm. recently, and this year was the first time in 146 years that women could wear a dark pair of shorts underneath their skirt or dress, which is to be all white. Wow. It's so nice a, of them to be considerate it 146 years later. 146 years for Wimbledon to decide that women could wear dark shorts under their all-white outfits. There have been tons of women athletes who have spoken out about it because some of them even go so far as to take birth control to make sure that they are not on their period during Wimbledon because uh-huh. of the all-white outfits. Uh-huh. And Wimbledon has been fighting this because they thought that these dark shorts would be just awful somehow i really don't get it it's um, just they're protecting their brand or whatever they're like all just, white everything it's just the vibe of wimbledon yeah so i included in the show notes an article from the bbc but this is their quote of what the rules of wimbledon are so you must be dressed in suitable tennis attire that is almost entirely white and does not include off-white or cream Trims in different colors are allowed on the necklines, cuffs, caps, headbands, bandanas, wristbands, socks, shorts, skirts, and undergarments. The code is clear that the trim should be no wider than a centimeter. Okay. And if there was any concern that players would start pattern clashing, the code decrees that the color contained within patterns will be measured as if it is a solid mass of color and should be within the one centimeter guide. Oh my. Plus, logos formed by variations of material or patterns are not acceptable. So, say Nike did something, you and I mean, and, and made up the swoosh out of mm-hmm. a splotch of different colors or a different material or whatever the case, that would not be allowed. Okay. 
So hasn't changed much other than the shorts under the skirt or the dress. So women will still be playing in Wimbledon in all white, except for you may see dark shorts. And at this Wimbledon, I saw like dark green shorts and black shorts. Huh. One thing that I read is that it was a sign of the upper class to have all white clothing. Oh my goodness. So that's part of what Wimbledon is coming from. (laughs) But But if you haven't seen what... Um, spectators were at Wimbledon. That's a whole entire other show. It's basically like the Kentucky Derby kind of yeah, dress. Yeah. Smaller hats. Okay, so they're still snooty, but they are Definitely accepting snooty. of periods now. Uh, I wouldn't say they're accepting, but they'll just let they're you. They're acknowledging bleed. of periods they'll let you now. They bleed a little differently. Yeah, you know? okay. Okay. Yeah, but they I acknowledge mean, the periods happen. No. They do acknowledge the periods happen. Good and for I, them. And I also just think all it would take is one person with a period. To start a birth control because of Wimbledon that caused something awful to happen. Like, geez. Yeah. You would just think Wimbledon would feel bad, but I guess they really care about the all-white on those green courts. They seem to. I also read about, they cut that grass, like, the day, every day that they play there. Mm-hmm. It gets watered, so it has to stay firm. It was really interesting. Yeah, I read about the whole Wimbledon experience. Wow. But their shorts, also one last thing, sorry. The shorts have to be... The length of their skirt or dress or shorter. Okay. Could not be like bike shorts longer or something uh-huh. like that. So they don't really want to see them until they're like in motion, basically. Okay. Yeah. That matters. It That's matters. a very strict dress code. It matters to Wimbledon. Okay. What'd you learn? In the course of researching for this episode, what I learned about was called the University in Exile. I was hmm. researching the new school. Um, University in Exile was founded in 1933 by the New School for Social Research in response to the growing threat of Nazism in Europe. It was a haven for scholars who had been forced to flee their home countries and it played a vital role in preserving and promoting academic freedom at the time. And then what, so what I learned, I knew about that, but mm-hmm. what I learned about was there is a new University in Exile consortium founded in 2018 by the New School. It's a network of universities and colleges that are committed to providing safe havens for endangered scholars. Hmm. Both the University in Exile and the new University in Exile Consortium protect academic freedom and ensure scholars can continue their work even in the face of persecution. Some universities and colleges that are members of the new University in Exile Consortium include Columbia University, New York University, and the University of Chicago. (laughs) And they've recently hosted scholars from both Ukraine and Afghanistan. Wow. Anyway, it's just interesting. I didn't know that it was sort of still active, but wow. yeah, they founded the new new version of it in 2018. It's way more and important these, than Wimbledon outfits. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Good I for them. They're both interesting, but now I just, I hadn't heard of it. Glad Good to for them it. though. That's yeah, awesome. The, the member entities will pledge to support at least one scholar in exile, basically. Wow. Um, interesting stuff. That's really, really neat. Okay. Anything mm. else? Final thoughts for the week before we wrap up? Uh, no, this was this was actually a really fun episode, and I'm glad we, we did some research on him. Uh, I have untarnished his name in my brain now. I think he yeah. might be worth revisiting for some of us. Yeah, I do know. think that's interesting to go back and revisit the stuff that you learned when you were coming up. Mm-hmm. Once you have, yeah. uh, you know, about a decade of professional experience yeah. under your belt, it can really... Reads differently. Yes. For sure. Yes. And because the whole time I was like, oh, I love Maria Montessori. I was like, well, why wouldn't I like Dewey? It's kind of the same vibe. Mm-hmm. Let him learn. Let him get in there and do it. And yeah. All right. We'll talk to you all in two weeks. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye-bye.
Hey listeners, thanks for supporting 16 to 1. We're your co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Adams. And I'm Katie Day. Find our show notes, archives, and resources, sign up for our newsletter, or get in touch with us via the contact form at 16to1.com, all spelled out. We are so grateful for our listener support. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the show and telling your friends or colleagues about it. The show is edited and produced by you, Chelsea Adams, and you're also responsible for our show's music. And you, Katie Day, serve as lead researcher and social media manager. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next show. Live long and prosper, y'all. Y'all? As Chelsea apparently speaks. I think that gave me the ick. I think that's that's my first ick for you. Oh, no.